Welcome to Alberta Conservation Association's Harvest Your Own podcast, the resource for everything hunting, navigating through the field, the butcher shop, and the kitchen. Life is all about great food. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Brad Fenson, an avid outdoor enthusiast who has worked as a freelance journalist, photographer, and public speaker for over three decades. I have hunted, fished, and foraged all my life and hope to share my passion for the outdoors. Along the way, I want to encourage everyone to harvest wild proteins and enjoy the satisfaction of providing the next meal for your family. Our goal is to educate, entertain, and inspire individuals to get outdoors and create a connection between food, health, and your future meals. Welcome to Harvest Your Own. We've uh, got some special guests here today, Todd and Linda Zemmerling and Lee Foote. Uh, bo- all people have been on the show before, are a great wealth of information, active outdoors people, and most of all, mentors. They're great educators and mentors for people going forward, and that is a, a huge thing for the future of hunting. Um, how are the Zimmerlings today? Glad to be here. Yeah. Great, thanks. That's good. How would you describe yourself, and uh, what are your passions in life? I would describe myself as friendly, active. I love being outside, although at minus 30, <laughs> it's less. But I, I do love hunting and fishing and recreating in the outdoors. Todd, I'm sure you're uh, very similar. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how I describe myself. I guess lucky. <laughs> uh, lucky to have a uh, family who's been very interested in being outdoors and enjoy the hunting and fishing as that I enjoy. So, yeah, really blessed to have the opportunities that I have. Yes, and Lee, what about yourself? Oh, I think I'm a casual person. And uh, my approach, unlike Todd who is a, and, and Linda, who are very active people, I'm more of a laid-back kind of guy. I've just sort of fallen into, a, a, as we say in the South, I've fallen into a tub of butter by having daughters that like to hunt and fish and um, having good friends around. So I'm not sure how this came to be. But, no, I'm, a, I'm, a reti- I'm retired now, so I'm a, a retired academic. And now I have the time to do a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about for a lot of years. Yeah, everyone touched on something really important. Uh, you feel lucky to be tied to family and friends that like to go out, uh, whether the Zemmerlings or Lee Foot. Uh, everyone enjoys going out with uh, their kids and perhaps their parents and other people as well. And that's what we're talking about today is when's a good time to introduce people to hunting as kids, what age and mentorship. Mentorship is very important. You know, it is the future of hunting. If we don't recruit new hunters, there is not much of a future for it. So it plays a really key role in our future as hunters and our enjoyment and opportunities and everything else. So mentorship is huge. And that's why you guys are on the show is because you've always played a key role. Lee, in your academic life, I believe uh, you've influenced a lot of people in a positive way about hunting, whether they took it up or not. I hope so, Brad. You know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't a proselyte. I didn't try to push this on anybody, but just like when we introduce our kids to hunting, the most powerful thing we can do is be a good, positive example Show them the, the genuine excitement, the pros and the cons, the uh, the opportunity to engage, and uh, how hunting can actually make you a better person. You don't have to say these things. You basically have to model it with your behavior and show it. I want to back up one step here and say that I think the reason our discussion today with the Zimmerlings came about 
is this wonderful article you wrote about them taking your kids and you out for this wonderful hunt. And I've got to say, it put a real big smile on my face because y'all were out there having a blast. You captured that so thoroughly. And I thought about that. That is the exact engagement and mentorship that brings kids into it because they see their parents or their, their friends having a blast with this. It normalizes it. It makes it uh, something that they want to do, and it sets the hook really deeply. So good job to all three of y'all. Well, thank you. It, it is a very special trip every year. We've been doing it for three years now since the girls were 18 months old, and you know we have videos of uh, Addie throwing a goose or a duck over her shoulder and carrying it to the trailer to Todd, and she was grunting and groaning and loving every minute of it. So it is very special memory, special times, but it takes a special person to put up with that, like to invite somebody out on a hunt with two twin girls, 18 months old or two or three, it can be very disruptive. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Zimmerlings uh, have dealt with it very well. And for the most part, their dogs have too. How would you, uh, how was the experience from your side looking, looking back? Well, I, I, I've really enjoyed it. I guess there's been a, a number of different things. Uh, the one great thing about it is, you know, Linda and I can go out with, with you guys and enjoy those young girls for, uh, for several hours. And then we know we can go home and go to bed and rest. <laughs> so that's one great part about it. Get them super pumped up on all the excitement and then we get to walk away. So it was, it was good that way. Uh, but it's, it's fun. I mean, it's a ton of fun and yeah, you're right. It's, you can't go into an experience like that thinking you're going to take out young kids and it's going to be like a normal day out there and everybody's going to sit quiet and you're going to get all the birds you want. But that's not why we're going out there either. Um, even even if we didn't fire a shot, just seeing them get excited about the birds just really reminds you why you're out there, the excitement that got, got you involved in the first place. So, I don't know about you, Linda. Well, I, I read the article to my parents who are 80, well, early 80s, and they just thought it was amazing that kids that young could be exposed to that and just the looks on their faces and how happy they were. And my dad asked, did you get many birds? And I said, yeah, actually we got quite a few, but that wasn't the point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How true. You know, I'm lucky. I grew up in a, I'll call it a hunting family. My dad hunted not to the extent that I do, but I have really fond memories of being out in the marsh with him when I was three and four years old and getting to carry the duck call and sometimes a duck home. But uh, these are special moments for our girls too. Like you don't understand the influence it has for the rest of the year. Uh, people come over and ask what they did this year, and they right away, you know, Addie's like, "Well, we went goose hunting. I got to retrieve birds." And you know, Maya's talking about her favorite duck and wants to sh- look up the pictures on our phones. So it's it's not just a moment in time or a glimpse. You know, when you introduce kids at an early age, it starts it starts that lifestyle, is what I'll call it which is very influential in terms of where we're heading in the future. Well, and yeah. as you mentioned, um, you talked about what age do you introduce someone to this. I wasn't introduced to it until I was 18, 19. Todd and I were dating, and that was my first exposure to hunting. I did not have family or friends that hunted. So he was my first mentor, and I went with him and his father. And um, that was that was also a good age to, to be introduced to it. So there's, there's, I, depending on how you do it, I say there's no wrong age to mentor someone and introduce them. Well, I can say without getting too touchy-feely here, it makes me kind of prickly, I think Linda has inadvertently touched on something here that really hunting is an act of love. 
I mean, whether it's her and Todd falling in love or whether it's our, we're taking our children along and we're, we're blowing stalks and passing up geese and ducks and stuff that we would normally shoot. The priority is the relationship and the kids. And as hunters get a little older, especially, and start realizing I've, I've killed plenty of ducks and geese. I've taken my share of deer and moose. Really, what's really more important is the relationship I'm carrying afield and the one I live with at home. And they're sharing this experience with us. And so they, they come to trust us. We trust them. We watch their growth. And it's, it's a lot more profound and powerful than even my passion for hunting. Our passion for people and each other really hate to say it, but it does exceed that of hunting. Well, Lee, that's interesting you bring that up because, uh, I think it helps, uh, sustain that love as well. And, uh, Todd's a good example of that. Uh, Linda shoots a moose almost every year and I believe Todd <laughs> gets to pack it out and he never complains and he does it willingly and he actively encourages it. So that mentorship and that friendship and the love of hunting and each other and the outdoors is something that can really be a positive thing for everybody. Complains a little bit. Yeah, I was gonna say you're being kind of you're very kind there, Brad. I I fair I complain a fair bit. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, we we hear about it. Yeah, he also has uh, tried to raise some uh, children to be young pack mules and take some of the pressure off him. <laughs> yeah, and that hasn't worked well. It has not worked well at all. You know, my, I, uh, my kids seem to know when not to come out. Today, mom's going to shoot some mooses. They they end up not coming out. Smart, you're a smart one. You know, I yeah, think exactly. I, I think that's part of a, a good mentor, though. Todd is you always want to do the things that encourage them to come back and participate. Uh, you teach them along the way, but uh, you're always going to be there to provide a helping hand, a new outlook on it and uh, make sure that it's a positive experience. And I, I, I see that in terms of what you're doing with your family. You know, your, your kids all hunt, and now they've got other people in their lives, and they've been introduced to hunting. Your dad, who is, uh, you know, a very avid hunter and has probably influenced you in your life, he is still active and gets out lots, and that's because you make sure it happens. So mentorship isn't just about getting somebody introduced to hunting or taking them the first time. It's, for you, it's more, the, more of a lifestyle. Yeah, I certainly would say it, it's a lifestyle. I guess um, I, I certainly started hunting with my father, like a lot of us uh, have uh, in the past anyways. And that's where it started for me. So I wanted to ensure that my kids had that same experience. I do remember, you know, when the kids get into, uh, start getting into sports. Um, nowadays, if, if your child starts to be any good at any sport, it seems to take up just about every day of their life. Um and I remember the day when they finally decided that they weren't going to bother playing league sports anymore. They were just going to play junior high and high school sports. And uh, that freed up a lot of time. All of a sudden, we had at least a Sunday available every weekend as opposed to every weekend being full of, of practices and games and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, for me, that really changed how we operated as a family. We decided to take that, you know, the free time that they got when they decided to change what they're doing for sports and make sure we were out in the field all the time, hunting or fishing. Um, and it, it, it really worked out well. I think the kids really enjoy it still. And, uh, yeah, like I say, both of them have other people in their life that they've now got into hunting as well. But with that, the decision was theirs. Like, we gave them the exposure to that. We made it an enjoyable experience. And then when it comes, came time for them to think about allocating their free time, 
one of their choices was hunting and fishing. Yes, and that's always important. If you plant that seed, and, you know, I've had my girls out before they were one. I put them in my backpack, put earmuffs on them, and we went for a walk in the back 40 to look for grouse and bunnies. Uh, Didn't always find things, but uh, we always had fun, and we were out actually doing that recently. Uh, The last day of grouse season, it's a ritual. We go out and walk the bunny trails and look for birds, and we didn't find anything except some moose beds and deer beds and tracks, but they loved it, and we're telling everyone about it. And that is what will influence them later in life when they have so many other things to, I won't call it just distraction, but so many other things to do. Brad, I actually did a little homework in preparation for this interview and called up my daughters and asked them for their perspective on what really set the hook for them as hunters. It was funny what they said. They they said the fact that they weren't allowed to go when they were very, very young, it really whetted their appetite and they were begging me to go. So I had them eating out of the palm of my hand early on. (laughs) They also said that we started a, a ritual. Whenever kids were along, we stopped and got a half dozen donuts. And uh, I got coffee. They got chocolate milk. You know, completely blew their eating habits. But they looked forward to that so much as an intermediate reward that donuts figured heavily in their early love of hunting. So go figure. <laughs> <laughs> they also said they loved the fact that if they got cold, the hunt was over and we came home. There was no misery until they got later. I, I made them miserable later on. But early on, it was early season, ducks and geese with a the dog there. They were in charge of the dogs. They had a role, and they watched this play out. And we got home, and then we made earrings out of out of duck feathers, some of these little green wing teal uh, wing feathers, and they thought that was the most elegant thing on earth because they were iridescent and glistening. So it was a bit of a strategy on my part, but they, it really got them into it on the, the grounds that a, a pink and purple-loving little fairy princess girl could appreciate. <laughs> I would call that the psychology of hunting, you know. Um... <laughs> Definitely the donuts and the treats and all the rest would play an important role, but also knowing the limitations. You know, kids have a shorter attention span. They get tired quick, but Todd and Linda would probably agree. Our girls don't seem to have an off button until they get in the truck at the end of the hunt when they fall asleep because (laughs) we put out, uh, I think, 800 to 1,000 snow goose decoys, and they were there to help put them out, pick them up, and it, it was not the warmest day. It was windy and cold and Dust was blowing with the dry conditions, but uh, they hung in there and they smiled through all of it. Yeah, they did. But I mean, I think, I mean, it's with any any child of, uh, well, I'll say, not just as young as your kids, but a lot older, uh, I, I think you're right. You have to make sure you don't make it miserable. Uh, I mean, yeah. you can't get upset. If someone's feeling cold, someone's feeling cold. Heck, I still got to make sure I don't get upset when Linda says she's feeling cold. Otherwise, I get yeah. a lot of trouble. But it's not fun if you're not if you're not enjoying it you shouldn't be forced to sit there and do it and i think people just have to remember that especially when you're mentoring someone it's not about you it's about them so how do you make sure their experience is a good experience where they will want to come back again that's really important because what you just said you're getting outside of yourself you're you're uh, burying the selfish notions and your wishes and you're in the service of someone else. And that, to me, is a really laudable human attribute that we don't always do in business or in competition or academics or whatever. We, we, but in hunting, it brings out our better selves, and that's a great example of it right there. Well, the other piece to that is how are you measuring success? Do you have to suffer mm-hmm. through it until you get something? No. You be there. You enjoy yourself. Whether or not you got a shot away, you the success was being there the success was not necessarily harvesting something 
And yep. keep it fun. Like our girls know the difference between the bird's feet and the colors and they can identify species. And when we go out, they know a bunny track from a squirrel track from a deer track and, and all the rest of it. But we all grew up in a different era. One thing that's really, I think, is important when we take kids out nowadays is don't take a distraction. Keep them engaged in the activity. Don't take an iPad or a phone where they can easily yep. drift off and forget about what they are doing or where they are. You know, make sure you show them the tracks, tell them the difference, or wherever you are, help them soak in the environment and the whole experience. That is what's going to hook them for the future. But, I mean, nowadays, I really think it's important to leave the distractions at home. You can have the juice boxes and treats and all that stuff to keep them refreshed and going, and they can have something in the vehicle on the way home. But when you're out there, keep it about the experience and make it fun. This podcast is produced for Harvest Your Own a program dedicated to those who want to reconnect with food and health through their experiences outdoors. HarvestYourOwn.ca is a resource for individuals to learn more about hunting and the outdoors. There's information to get you started and ensure that your compass stays pointed in the right direction to be successful. Where's your next meal coming from? I agree with that, Brad. Brad. There's so many kids so addicted to the electronic pacifier of a cell phone there is a compromise situation. If you give them a small digital camera and ask them to chronicle, photograph, and use their observational skills to bring some of the hunt back, they have their own set of trophies there. And it gives them something to do with their hands, and it is digital. So that was my compromise early when, when my girl's friends would come along, and I'd say, you got to park your cell phone. They wanted to cancel the trip at that, at that point. My girls knew the routine. One other thing I might add is when they come back and mix it up with their peer groups and their, their school teachers, they're not going to always get the warmest reception to hunting. And you have to prepare them a little bit for this because peer pressure from the peers that, ooh, you killed the animal or you were out there hunting. They have to have the wherewithal to stand up to that and understand that. We've actually had teachers that were, were down on hunting. And I had to go talk to the teacher and say, please just stay neutral at best on this. So this is a no-go topic for my family. Uh, so in my, in my, my girls in downtown Edmonton, they, they were the only kids in their entire class who had ever been out hunting. And so they were sort of fighting an uphill battle to make their position clear. You know, I've had the same circumstance where I've had friends call me and say, I want to line up a talk at our kid's school. Would you be willing to go in? And exact same topic. Teacher didn't understand hunting, didn't want to accept it, was down on it, and uh, went in and talked about uh, how a farmer manages their livestock herd and how you can't just let it grow and how things are a balance and how we can enjoy it and how we, we all eat proteins and meat. And uh, it did make a difference. It changed opinions, but you have to step up and do that. And that's part of mentorship as well. And I think one of the, the best ways to convert people's thoughts is to give them some of it to eat. You know, that's, uh, that's always been a, a big converter for me. No doubt about it, yeah. Yep. The kids go to school with jerky and pepperoni, and everyone wants to trade their lunch for a piece of it, which uh, makes it pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what we call baiting, uh, Brad. You, you baited <laughs> some people into the hunting fold there with your pepperoni. Right. So, yeah. you know, the first question was, when do we get kids into hunting? By the sounds of it, is as soon as you can. You know, I've like I said, put them in your backpack and put hearing protection on them, take them for a walk, let them enjoy the outdoors, let them see the sights and sounds. Uh, keep it going through the young years, take them out, uh, do it at their pace, not yours, keep it fun. Scott, uh, Todd and Linda, you had your kids go into different sports, you let them experience different things uh, and make their own decisions, and it is a pretty addictive lifestyle, so most of the time they do come back to it. They miss it at some point, 
so my advice to anyone listening is if you got kids and you want to introduce them to hunting, uh, you can either take the route of Lee and use donuts and, uh, and get them out there that way. You can start them early or, or make them wish they could go and create the, the want. Well, I was just going to say, just in support of Lee's donut, um, we did, especially when it came to uh, the duck and goose hunting side of things, we did often stop at Tilly's Pizza in Tollfield on the way home, which started to become something that I think the kids are more interested in that than the hunting itself. So. Well, <laughs> I've, I've gone along on a few snow goose hunts just with the hopes that we were going to Tilly's on the way home. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would might add that we've kind of circled around this I think there might be a little cultivation and plowing of the ground before the kids go hunting. They kind of know what to expect. They're anticipating it. They're excited about it. They want to be part of it. They want to have a sense of belonging. And the way we relate to our hunting buddies, our friends, and the preparation, the excitement, the dog training in advance can really make this a a receptive topic for kids and make them want to go before they ever get out in the field. They also need to understand after you come back from the hunt that they didn't go on that this beautiful organism you brought back, maybe this glistening mallard or this sleek uh, 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 cottontail, they they get to see that and experience the wonderment of that. Again, the earrings were a bit of a trick, tanning the hides or, or showing the muscle groups or, or things like that, and then cooking and eating it. before. If they have those skills in, in hand in advance, then the hunt is just something to make these other things happen, this anticipation and this gratification at the end of it. The eating part of it definitely was a big part of, of us and our kids. Certainly as our kids were growing up, we, you know, you'd drive down the road, oh, there's a moose in the field, or there's a deer in the field. Uh, our daughter in particular, sure, her response was always, oh, yum. It was never, what a beautiful buck, what a beautiful moose, it was always yum. So she related hunting directly to food. She definitely <laughs> likes her food. And so, yeah, most that's as she grew up, that was her, this is hunting, I enjoy it but I enjoy eating the animal as much or more than I do harvesting it. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. There's actually different uh, ways to mentor people, and, you know, we've all had great experiences with our kids, and I think it makes us proud when they actually become hunters or show an interest and want to stick with it as adults. It's, uh, it is it is special in our lives. But there's lots of older people that uh, would like to perhaps experience hunting and don't know how to do it. And again, Todd and Linda, you guys have been great mentors. Linda, you took your sister out. It's the first time she's ever hunted, correct, this year? Yeah, you know, that was really phenomenal because we we walked together regularly. And this one time she brought up that she had an interest in, in going goose hunting. And I said, oh, so I think the first part of mentoring an adult is um, – letting them know they'll get opportunity, but also putting them in the right direction for the training that they need, like AHIA and um, the hunter education. And if you have any questions, obviously I'm here for you and that kind of thing. So part of the mentoring is just understanding what the steps are and where to send them for a good breakdown. Um, Even um, Harvest Your Own uh, website has all the steps for, okay, you want to hunt, how do you get into it? And then, so the, the mentorship piece also includes sending them in the right direction. And then um, following that, once they're ready and they have, you know, ticked all the boxes, okay, let's go out. And making that part of it calm, relaxed, you know, this is your first time shooting a gun, okay, well, before the birds even show up, let's just, sh- you know, shoot at some targets and 
get you some comfort with the gun and those kinds of things. And after the hunt, I honestly, I don't know that she dropped anything that first time. She took shots, which I think is huge. A lot of first-time hunters don't even want to shoot the gun, but because she'd already shot it a few times um, before the hunt, then once the birds did come in, she took shots. Um, maybe we credited her with uh, one or two. But my most exciting part at the end of that hunt, I said, so how was that? And she said, well, I'd like to do that again. <laughs> and that was just the best answer I could have got. That's a really interesting point, Linda. And I, I think I need to dwell on that a little bit is that how we contextualize and process what's just happened, especially when you're standing inside of a, a hunter's first dead whitetail or, or moose or something big like that. You both know that sometimes there's elation, sometimes there's tears, sometimes there's this questioning look on people's face like, what have I just done? And you, and they're looking to you for outside guidance and validation and contextual, and context at that point. And you can provide that with a, a very heartfelt, meaningful display of this is a wonderful thing. And all of a sudden their whole perspective changes. And you did that apparently with this sister that wanted that that she would go back out and your excitement would have been tangible. She would have picked up on that. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I think Lee brings up a really good point. The the animal is dead now. Now what? That is something that I, I don't think mentors think enough about a lot of times because it's been a long while since you've shot your first animal. I, I don't think people get as, as emotional about birds some mm-hmm. nights, but definitely when you see a, a, a deer or a moose or something like that, uh, especially if you know, they're not all the time or they're completely dead when you walk up to it. You might see that last breath. Yeah. And when that happens, there is, and I, I think it's important to express to somebody, there's nothing wrong with feeling emotional with that. An animal has, has died. So there's nothing wrong with feeling emotional about it. But keep in context what and why the animal died. The harvesting, the ethical process has been used, the fact it was a quick death, the fact that it will be used and respected. Um, so I yeah. think that's something we've certainly tried to um, impress upon anybody we've taken out. Um, you know, Like I say, especially for the big game, but you know, Certainly for ducks and geese as well. It's you know they're not always dead when they hit the ground, so people have mm-hmm. to be prepared for that. That yeah, you you have taken animals' life, but you know here's here's the upside, here's the positive, here's the the respect that was used to harvest this animal. Yeah, and the respect yeah, also are- comes to the hunter when when they are showing emotion. I mean that's a big part of it. I remember taking my wife out on her first uh, big game hunt, and she shot a a cow elk, and it it was a very emotional time for her. So you have to embrace yeah. that and work through it and give them their time to process it and let them know that everything is all right. And, you know, she yeah. did know it yeah. was all right, but it's still the first time that experience, you know, is is her experience, not mine. So it's, it is something you have to be yeah. uh, cognizant of. That before, during, and after experience is really an important continuum. And in many ways, one of the greatest gifts these animals give to us isn't necessarily the meat or the experience. It's the contemplation and insights we get onto mortality in general that we're all going to die. Our pets die. They give us this gift of having to deal with them as a vet in the last years. Um, this animal has died, and we take responsibility for that, and we realize that we'll follow it into the great hereafter ourselves at some point. And to look directly at that and think about it, it there's an opportunity to say thanks in some ways for these animals. They, they make us think and feel 
and consider things that we don't consider every day. We're, we have pretty big denial organisms, organ, organs that, that keep us from thinking about this because we, our whole society tends to seal people away in either care homes and then under concrete in a remote uh, burial plot. But we really need to think this through and not live in denial. And that, that's a gift in some ways. And we should be appreciative. Yeah, I think when we approach these things, uh, we have to do it in a, a modern style. Uh, some cultures uh, in the Deep South, Lee, you can probably uh, talk more about this. You know, you shoot your first deer, <laughs> you eat a piece of the liver, or they put blood on your forehead, yeah. do different things. And that can be offsetting yeah. for some people, you know. Uh, I was up north and uh, with some Inuits, and they shot uh, a caribou, and they cut a piece of the liver, mm-hmm. dip it in the stomach contents, and eat it as part of uh, tradition for a first harvest. I don't think that would go yeah. over real well with everyone around here. You know, it's just too foreign, and it's too far out of the box. So when they harvest an animal, or you do, and they're along, I think it's important for you to take steps to to really soften the whole experience. And I think you, you've done that with your ecology classes too, and you've actually brought deer home and had them in the backyard. Yeah. Um, you're, you're exactly right. I have a picture that I keep in my, my photo album of, of me with a bright red face where they rub blood on my face. It's not the, these rites of passage have been sort of ironed out of modern society. It used to be that your first animal you were killed, your, your first child you had, when, when young women hit the menses, all these things were celebrated with a rite of passage. And this, I guess that's what that was. It, I knew it was coming. That wasn't a surprise to me. Just like if you shot and missed, they were going to cut your shirt tails off. Those are little funny rites of passage that you, and everybody misses eventually. I don't know if it's a bad thing, but it, it, it could be upsetting if it caught you uh, by surprise. <laughs> yeah, so, my class, let me say a word or two about that because it was a class filled with, with uh, essentially non-hunters and it's been written up in a few places and it's becoming more common actually um i would bring students over to actually take a, a white tail recently killed white tailed deer that was intact in my backyard under a tarp We'd, we would talk about this we would expose them to the deer we'd talk about the biology of the deer then we would slowly pull this animal into useful pieces of meat butcher it out cook some on the fire shrink wrap a lot of it and they all all took some meat home with them in shrink wrap labeled something that looked like they got it at Safeway actually, but it seemed to make them carry this from field to animal to meat to my body continuum home with them. And for a lot of the students, that was a very profound, profound thing. You know, it's interesting how it can be very profound. I've been fortunate enough to go down with uh, Todd and Linda to the Tabor Pheasant Festival where they have a novice hunt and try to help out people that don't have a mentor or don't have an opportunity to get out. They can come to the pheasant festival and get an opportunity to shoot their first pheasant. They get to practice uh, on mm-hmm. clay targets, and there's birds that are released that are, it's a controlled environment. And it's uh, the expression and the happiness, and I don't even know how to express it all with the participants afterwards, is quite interesting. What about, I've always found interesting there, Brad, and I'm sure you've noticed it too, is how excited the parents are. If it's a young person shooting their first pheasant, they're excited for sure, but the parents seem to be as excited or more excited that their child has, uh, maybe it's exactly that rite of passage that they've shot their first bird and they're just super excited for everybody. So it's interesting to see. Yeah, it's a big moment for everyone. And, you know, Todd, I'll take that one step further because I interviewed a bunch of those people after the novice shoot 
And the parents that weren't hunters were also just as excited as the parents that were hunters, which was quite interesting. This podcast was made possible by Alberta Conservation Association and the Harvest Your Own community. If you're interested in harvesting your own food, there's a comprehensive collection of information to gain insight and knowledge, head to the field, harvest your own protein, prepare it, and taste the results. HarvestYourOwn.ca is a library of information from getting started and geared up to processing, butchering, and cooking wild game to make the connection between health and food. I'd like to put a plug in here for the Harvest Your Own approach. Pheasants are a great example. Uh, not only are they delicious and edible, they're very photogenic. And I grew up in a household in Louisiana that had a big vase full of pheasant tail feathers. I don't know where they came from, maybe Pier 1 or something, but they were a decorative ornament. And I know fly tires that want waterfowl and pheasant feathers for hackles and things like that. There's a lot more to use on a lot of these animals than just the meat. And uh, I think it's, it gives honor to the animal and it gives it a great starting place for discussion to, to use these gorgeous part body part other than the just the meat it's interesting you say that lee because before we started this uh, podcast i was talking to the zemmerlings uh linda has a moose scapula from the moose she shot last fall hanging in her yard and the woodpeckers are busy working it over today and i have elk ribs hanging off my deck and there's a, a continual flight of different birds coming in to take advantage of it and newly pecked holes in the different portions of it so interesting to watch and a great way to not only fully utilize uh, game, but I have to say I've introduced an awful lot of people to harvesting wildlife that walk into the yard and look at it and almost, you know, stand there with an open mouth, jaw open, like, what is that? Well, it's <laughs> it's a set of elk ribs, and the birds love it. You know, it's it's uh, for some, it's the first introduction to a wild game harvest. What a conversation starter. You know, I yeah, think... I UPS guys are a little concerned when they go by right Brad's place. <laughs> I've had some different comments. You know, I'd, uh, I've got a power pole in the front yard here where I put all the different antlers and uh, horns and stuff on it. It's a totem sort of uh, uh, in memory of those animals. Uh, keep them up there where we can people can view them and admire them and think about the trips and the, the memories and the friends and all that. But uh, lots of people pull in the yard and look at it, and they, they wondered where I had it sculpted. So... It, it is interesting oh, how different people have uh, view our world and how many people just haven't had any influence about hunting at all. That's really interesting about recycling the body parts. Uh, actually, almost every kill, whether it's a rapid viscera or a gut pile from a deer, that's, nothing in nature is wasted. That stuff is, is not only feeding coyotes and, and skunks and small mammals. There are ravens that are pulling pieces of that, that off and stashing it in spruce trees all over the place. The entire forest gets a big boost of nutrient overwintering carrying capacity from these, these gut piles, and they're dependent on it. So I like to think that we're actually bird feeders of the wild in some ways. You know, uh, to, to pull things together here at the end, Todd and Linda, you, you do spend an awful lot of time every year taking out new hunters. I, I admire you for that. I don't know anyone, another couple that takes out as many people as you do. It takes away from your own experience at times, but obviously provides a different experience that you really appreciate. What advice have you got for other hunters to ensure that they get new people out hunting or introduce people, friends, family, neighbors, or somebody that expresses an interest? Well, I think, uh, I think the first thing I would suggest is people should, be take, should take a look at the mentored courses that are available. Um, Linda and I both took the, uh, the AHIA 
mentorship, uh, shotgun mentorship, a training course, uh, I guess two years ago now. Um, excellent way to gain confidence in in how to deal with new hunters, uh, in particular the safety side of it, because you know we, we've been talking about the experience, but obviously you know you want to make sure everybody's coming back safe and healthy from this thing. So uh, he has just put on a great course uh, at the facility down in Calgary to run you through all the different scenarios you might be in if you're uh, waterfowl hunting with a new hunter, and um, sort of that type of Training really gives you confidence. I certainly noticed in Linda herself, she was a lot more confident since she's taken that. She's taken people out on her own. You know, I didn't need to be around at all. She's taken a couple different ladies out. And uh, just the level of confidence really jumps up there uh, once you have, you know, some type of background. You feel a little bit better about uh, knowing what you should or shouldn't be doing and things to look for. So that would be the first bit of advice to give uh, Linda. I agree with Todd with that idea, of course. Like, I would never have thought to take someone out on my own but I have done it now a couple of times and yeah I just I felt really good about it and I I think again it's similar to my comment I made earlier is it's how you measure success success wasn't necessarily harvesting something success was a safe trip out an enjoyable trip out just enjoying the experience if you harvested something that's really cool but that wasn't that wasn't the end game. And I, I would suggest to someone who is interested in mentoring, take that IHEA course and also, uh, as Lee mentioned and Todd, I think, too, make sure the experience is about them. Go go into it with the right mindset of, of why you're bringing these people out and, and kind of see it from their perspective. And it's kind of fun to do that again. It, it helps you revisit all the initial feelings you had about hunting, seeing it again through fresh eyes. Very well said. What you described, Linda, is, is I think it's almost tribal in a sense, but it's that sense of belonging. It's a shared experience. I've got friends that go out every year for their traditional all-women's hunt. There's five women that go out, they go elk hunting, and they have a lot of success. But they also say the experience is precious to them because it's, it's different, and they they can see it through each other's eyes more easily than they could going out with their dad or their husband. That's, I completely support that. That's really wonderful. Well, I was just going to say, I would, one thing I would, uh, I guess, ask of mentors is it's, it's relatively easy to take out someone, child who's from a hunting family. And you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't say, no, I'm not going to, but look for opportunities to take out people who are not from hunting families. Because that's really where we're going to expand hunting into the future. Um, yep. Most times, if someone's from a hunting family, eventually they will get out. Eventually they will pick it up and they'll do at least a little bit of hunting. And at the worst case scenario, maybe they'll become a hunter, but at least they're not an anti-hunter. Whereas right. if you're looking for people who just aren't going to get that opportunity, they just don't come from a hunting background and they're not going to be introduced to it that way. If they're showing a little bit of interest, that's an opportunity there. And again, Maybe they don't become a hunter, and I think that's something to remember as a mentor. Just because you take someone out doesn't mean they're going to become a full-time hunter. But they'll have, a, if they have a positive experience, they'll have a positive attitude towards hunting in the future. Yes, mm-hmm. appreciation goes a long way. Lee, just uh, to close things up here, uh, do you have any comments about when we do finally get these people out for their first experience, and they harvest something, and they have all those emotions? How do we celebrate success with them, and how do we deal with the field dressing or processing or 
to to bring it to a closure for them? Yeah, I, I would strongly suggest you don't say you killed it now you got it. That that, that coarse uh, machismo approach that that many of us dealt with. Um, I also think you need to sit down with them, let emotions cool off. Again, contextualize it that this is a wonderful thing. There are trade-offs. There's some work. There's the, the sadness of, of this organism going from living to dead. But it's also you bring honor to the organism and you bring justification to the, the human that killed it. Then for the first animal, you become the demonstrator. I like to take, especially big game, I like to take them apart, shoulders and hindquarters and back straps off first before I open up the, the carcass. Because this idea of rumen fluid or or things that people have a disgust about, this innate disgust reaction, has to be recast as something that's natural and fascinating and can be done very surgical and really intriguing. It's, it's this great voyage into the interior. And, uh, and if, you can dis- if you can show that excitement and this curiosity and this awe for this organism, then you, you get away a lot from the disgust. A quick little side note. And, and I had a white-tailed doe that I took apart, and I took the entire reproductive tract out and pinned it on a piece of cardboard, washed it up, made it very neat, and showed it to my class. And I happened to mention this is the same shape, size, and behavior as a female uh, human reproductive tract. These, the women were over there checking out ovaries and fallopian tubes and getting a really interesting insight into what they carry with them in a way they never could have either. And it took something that would have been guts and disgusting being fascinating and educational and appreciated. So there, there is this side of it. If you do a little homework, you can make this a wonderful experience rather than a disgusting experience. So I don't just hand them the knife and say, here, flash it open. That, that's not the way it goes. Our kids have been hunting with us since they've been 12 years old. So my son, I guess, is now 24. Still to this day, when he shoots an animal, I would say I do most of the cleaning because he's still not over the smell. <laughs> he's got you well trained, Todd. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I started to see it. I see him starting to turn a little green. Like, okay, I'll do this rest of this. You just hold the link. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, our daughter is very much in there. I, mean, I can remember as a seven-year-old, actually, I think she was maybe five, Todd had to actually move her back. Uh, we had a deer hanging in the garage, and she was so close. She wanted to watch as he was skinning it, and he actually had to say, honey, you need to move back. I'm going to pull on this now. And she's in there like a dirty shirt. And, yeah, every animal that she gets now, she's like, okay, I got my knife. And, you know, I mean, she appreciates help, and but she'll she's she's right in there. She has a good understanding of what needs to happen, and she's she's not squeamish at all. The only issue I've ever seen her have is uh, last year she shot a moose, a bull moose, and she's only wow. five foot five foot two tall. Uh, she couldn't get far enough. Well, I didn't want her to have to get far enough to, up into the rib cage to get the uh, to cut out the lungs because it would have meant her halfway crawling up into the animal. So. <laughs> But but she was gonna do it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, sorry, halfway up or I think I'll I'll get that for you. You can do the rest. So yeah. You know, you know, I didn't do this, but I probably should have. You know, my early hunting, uh, big game hunting folks, I probably should have had a store bought rabbit and brought it home and let folks see how the meat pieces come off and demystify this whole disarticulation process for when they finally did get their deer. Uh, that'd be a really easy ramp instead of a cliff metaphor for introduction to butchering an animal. 
you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. I think we've uh, planted a seed for people to think about who they could take out, who they could introduce to hunting, how they could get family involved, when to get their kids involved. Has anyone got any last words of wisdom they want to share before we wrap up today? I guess the only thing I would like to mention is the domino effect that has happened from me taking my sister out. One of her daughters now wants to come out and one of her daughter's friends wants to come out and another of her cousins on my my sister's husband's side. So you can really create a domino effect if the experience is positive and they say, oh my goodness, my aunt did that? Okay, well, my mom did that? I can, I'd like to try that. And yeah, that I think is one of the most exciting parts that happened to me on a mentor hunt is the domino effect that has resulted from it. Mm-hmm. I might go ahead one fi- final one final set of things and we touched on it a bunch of times here that even if I'm not in charge of the, the firearms training, the licensing, uh, the, the hunter training, I have a, I can have a huge influence on the attitude and the appreciation and education and the edification and the, the joy, the love, the, the attitudes people carry into this. And if they have the right attitude and motivation, they'll seek out the logistical issues of training and firearms and, and places and landowner access and all that. Those are, those are logistical. Anyone can do that. But we are in a special privileged position to introduce the acceptability, the joy, the natural aspect, the full utilization, the recipes, the, the sharing, this human element. That's really our bailiwick as hunters. We bring this joy to the hunt. And you just can't put a dollar figure on that. And no, no teacher can necessarily do that. This is one-to-one sharing. And it gets people jazzed up and it makes them, it changes their attitudes and worldviews. That's where we make our deepest mark, I think. Yeah, I found that once our kids hit their 20s, and therefore their friends are in their 20s, we started to see a lot more interest from our kids' friends to come out hunting. And a lot of that was based around food. So, I mean, we we eat wild game all the time in our house. And so making sure you know how to cook the wild game properly so you're not turning people off the idea like who would want to go learn how to shoot a moose if the meal they had well i was going to say tasted like liver but you guys like liver i don't like liver so tasted like something you don't like um uh, why why would you want to learn how to you know harvest a whole pile of that um so making sure that you are preparing meals properly and, and uh, you know, getting the best out of it is the first step, I think, of getting interest. But um, that I, I have found that we've got a lot more interest from our kids' friends in their 20s than we ever had when they were in high school. And a lot of them are very interested around this idea of where where can I get ethically sourced food? Where can I be in charge of where the food comes from? So it's, uh, it's an important trend and something I think we can all jump on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, l- I'd like to thank our guest today for coming on. It's I find this one of the most important topics we can cover. Uh, not only thank you for being here and sharing your wisdom, your background, and all the rest of it, but mostly for being a mentor. You know, every single mentor counts. And every new person we can uh, introduce to hunting, uh, whether they become hunters or understand it better or accept it or become uh, a larger part of our society that embraces hunting, is extremely important for all of us. For more information on becoming a mentor, how to get involved, how to hunt different species, and how to cook them up, please visit Harvest Your Own. We hope to inspire people to reconnect with nature and appreciate where your food comes from 
by harvesting your own. For more information on getting started or to learn specifics about the Field to Fork experience, visit harvestyourown.ca and follow on Facebook and Instagram. Check back often for new material, recipes, and videos that are posted regularly. Please subscribe to Harvest Your Own Podcast and take the time to rate and review the show to help us build a dedicated core of passionate hunters as our regular audience. Until next time, embrace the outdoors and all it has to offer. Thanks for joining us.